welcome to the Newberry Report, where once every two weeks we discuss a book that won the Newberry Medal, an award given every year for the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. Today, the winner in 1970, Sounder, by William H. Armstrong. With me today, I have Steph Leakey and Carolyn Burns, who also, at least allegedly, love children's literature. Uh, uh, <laughs> Carolyn, say hey. Hi, this is Carolyn. Steph, say hey. Hello, this is Stephanie. Steph, you want to start us off with a summary of Sounder? Sure. Sounder is basically about this African-American family who are sharecroppers. In a time of basically hardship for them, the father ends up getting arrested by the sheriff for stealing a ham from one of the white families. A few days later, Sounder, their dog, gets shot and ends up hiding away um, for a while with the boy and family thinking that, you know, he's dead. And from there, we follow the boy on his journey as he goes to find where his father is and where his father has been taken. Along the way, he does meet, you know, various characters um, later on meeting a teacher who ends up teaching him how to read. And then when he is back home, they see a man coming in the distance who ends up being the father returning from many, many years working in prison camps, who has also been disfigured, um, much like Sounder, unfortunately. The father ends up passing away, and Sounder um, passes away shortly afterwards. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's okay. Well, get out. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it just... um, it just felt so far removed from me as the reader. Like, it didn't seem interested in uh, allowing me entrances into these characters. The, the characters themselves, and we'll get into this more deeply in a moment, are are almost not even, they're almost caricatures. They're, not, they're almost not even real people, but rather mosaics of people, I think. They seem to, I mean, they don't even have names, for crying out loud. Like, none of the characters have names except for the dog, and the dog gets title billing. <laughs> <laughs> and the characters are always referred to either as sort of their um, gender, the woman, the man, the boy, or is their relationship to each other. Um, you know, Sounder's master or uh, his mother or his father. Carolyn, what do you, what do you, why do you think the author didn't give anybody names? Uh, well, you know, we have some, some record of, of Armstrong himself talking about it and him wanting to make the experiences that the characters have in the novel to be universal. So by n- trying to make them these sort of broad caricatures instead of very specific and, and delved into characters, there there is a little bit of re- relatability that you can get from that. You know, you can put yourself in other people's shoes a little bit easier. But the problem I have with that choice is that we are already not going to put ourselves in these people's shoes. You know, it's from a completely different time period. It's from a job that basically no longer exists in America. From when he was writing, even. It's not like he was writing and this was a contemporary novel at the time. Right. We're reading it way past the seven, 1970 when it was written. But it, even in 1970, he was writing a 100-year-old story. So it's already something where I'm going to have trouble relating to these characters and maybe it was a last ditch effort like hey maybe if I make them these sort of nebulous he she we characters that people can relate to a little bit more but it just falls flat for me personally 
Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, especially when, I, and then I'm starting to read in between, like when we're calling, for example, the mother, when we're calling her the mother and when we're calling her the woman, is she somehow devoid of her motherhoodness, like in this moment as opposed to another moment? Like, it, I couldn't tell if it was just for the sake of variety that he was changing up the way that we referred to people or whether there was something really specific about it that I just wasn't either intuiting or connecting to. Steph, how about you? I mean, it didn't bother me as much, but I can see where you both are coming from in the sense that there were some distinguishing characteristics given to at least some of the characters at various points that make you wish, okay, I wish I could relate this to the name of someone. You don't have to argue our side. Um, Argue your side. Oh, no, I am. (laughs) (laughs) But no, no. I mean, yeah, there are certain, you know, little elements thrown throughout the book for the mother and the father and characteristics that are provided where just that giving them a name would have just elevated that a little bit more. Um, But unfortunately, we don't get that. Why do you think only Sounder got a name? You know... I have no idea. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly important. Yeah, it's on the yeah. cover of the book. Yeah. And he's not here. He's not here for most of it. He's a he's a surprisingly very small character in this book. Uh, and we'll probably talk about this later, but Sounder just basically is the character of the father in parallel within the book itself. Like, Sounder exists just to have the exact same experiences that the father has. It's very strange, and I and I don't understand why he gets top billing, as you call it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, and not only that, but this the name Sounder comes from the sound that his bark makes, which everybody knows, which he loses almost immediately, which he loses in chapter two when he gets shot. He doesn't make a sound for the rest of the book until the father comes back, which is, you know, really near the end. So even the action that's given him his name is lost. To be fair, I started thinking that maybe uh, this sort of this sort of lack of identifying the characters that the boy meets might be like his own, the author's reflection of like a child's point of view sort of meaning that um you know we we meet the teacher the like the man in the store the girl on the street you know all all of these unnamed uh characters that may not be named because we can't empathize with them because you can't empathize with a different way of life if you haven't experienced that yet and if you don't have sort of internalized that point of view and it's it's a very childish way of looking at the world, not childish, childlike. <laughs> it's a very childlike. In a positive way. It's a very childlike way of looking at the world to to not be, I mean, you think of tiny children and they look up and they're like, oh, that's the teacher. And they they can't see her in, in or as, or her, uh, as, <laughs> uh, they look at their teacher and they can't see him or her in, as a real person in, in real life going to the store. You know, you don't think of your mom as someone who is doing adult things you think of her only as your mother with animals especially i find in uh we sort of make fun of the dead dog books which of course we're starting with one of the dead dog books but uh these animals serves as proxies for the relationships that these these children and that that people have later on in their lives and it's a little bit easier to learn 
about death and about loss through a dog than through someone ultimately much closer to you. And um, a friend of mine actually said that he found a bunch of, um, I think it was gerbils or hamsters, there's probably a difference, um, in his, um, like, the apartment uh, lobby. And so he bought a book that was like, how to raise hamsters or gerbils, whichever they were. And they, one of the first paragraphs describes them as uh, animals that die very quickly, between two and three months, and that that makes them an excellent conversation starter for talking about death with your children, which I'm sure is not why the gerbils or, and or hamsters thought they were here on this planet, but dogs or animals being this uh, placeholder or proxy for um, loss or death of a loved one, um, that it's it's possibly a... I, I sort of project this onto children's books as being slightly more didactic than, than other books might be. And in that way, we learn about death and loss and grieving through the loss of something like a dog that we can feel close and connected to without it being something that we rely on, like our parents. So do you think the boy, do you think that that's why Armstrong has the boy so focused on Sounder and not the loss of his father, even though the loss of both is a question mark? We don't know if either of them are coming back because they're not capital D dead when they first disappear. Um but do you think it's easier for the boy to think about Sounder than it is about the father? Yeah, so. <laughs> I think I think the boy is not. I think in this case, the boy is not dealing with his father going missing. I think it's it's easier, and they they happen at the same time. You know, the day his father is taken away is the day the dog gets shot and runs off into the woods and doesn't return for weeks, and it makes sense that for for something as emotionally stunting as having your father carted off to jail and have no idea when or if he'll return that oh and also my dog went missing you know like I'm going to use my brain power to think about that instead and it sort of is setting him up and giving him I I, I read it almost as like this is my trial run for dealing with my father's death and my father's disappearance like I'll figure out my emotions with the dog first and then maybe later I'll actually process my father (laughs) yeah it feels like also something maybe he can solve like he goes about looking for a sounder he finds the ear and puts it under his pillow and hopes that I don't know it grows a sounder overnight yeah spoiler (laughs) alert there's he takes the dog's ear and puts it under his pillow for those of you that hasn't read the book (laughs) and then my favorite part is the next which the bed he shares with his siblings so like somehow they don't notice it and then he wakes up in the morning he takes the ear out puts it in his pocket and he smells the pillows (laughs) I guess to make sure they don't smell of ear or dog I don't know Uh, but they don't Anyway, (laughs) I think it's something he thinks he can solve, right? Like, he can go underneath the house and look for Sounder. He can go places where Sounder might be. There's no way he can go to the jail and get his father back, even if he doesn't have an an understanding of the hierarchy of the world. um, Like, overtly, he certainly has an intuitive sense of the way that the things work. And, And also, like, I do the same thing. Like, if work is complicated and it's all of these obligations I have to other people, but if my boyfriend does something that makes me mad, like, that's where I'm going to focus because that's the <laughs> thing that I can solve in the moment. Yeah. I can't figure out how my to get my boss to listen to me about this or how to move forward, you know, through other channels in my job. Outside of the boy and his dog, it just works as a literary device. You know, you see the dog and the father and then the dog is shot and the boy goes through the process of trying to find the dog and we sort of see that play out and then later goes through the process of seeing the dad and you sort of see these internal parallels within the book um 
that I, I think have to be intentional. So in that opening um, author's note, Armstrong tells us that this this story is actually the story of the Odyssey, of um, the dog from the Odyssey, from Argus, from Odysseus's dog. Did you guys get the sense that it was an adaptation of the Odyssey, or did you would you not have thought that if he hadn't have said it? I mean, I wouldn't have known about at least Odysseus's dog had we not kind of delved into that or did a little bit more thinking and research into a little like the background of the book um but i mean when you actually look at the story of argus argos um it is very much um the similarities are pretty much there it is very much like the same story i think that the strongest parallel to the odyssey to be made is not between the boy and the dog it's between the man and the dog the yeah, father of course, of course so the story is not the father's though so to, so comparing it to the odyssey which is odysseus's story of going on this journey and it's told from his point of view that sure the parallels are there but we're not there to go to to follow the father's story we're there because we're following the boy and that's completely different it's 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 a different relationship he has with the dog the dog never has the same sort of loyalty that he does to the father um so i think the the parallel might fall apart a little bit there the great thing about the odyssey is the odyssey right it is the trip it is the journey it's the trying to get back home and all this story is is the people that are left at home and we don't even get the dog for most well, of it. Yeah, that's <laughs> the true. dog is on his own journey for for part of this, either in order to try and live or or whatever the dog's instincts lead him to do once his ear is shot off. But that's the fun part, the exciting part of the Odyssey. And so most of the book is waiting. And even when we finally get to the parts where the boy goes out to look for his father, we only get these tiny snippets of like, this is what it was like. But time passed. And then he had this terrible interaction, and then time passed. And so it's like, the, it feels like the meat of the book isn't in the book. Or what's the most exciting thing about the book isn't there. If this book had like a Hollywood moment, it was at the very end when they're sitting on their front porch, the, the, the boy and his mother, and they see this shadowy figure hobbling up the walk and they don't know who it is and they're not sure and he's walking with this limp and that incites Sounder's howl and this bark that just reverberates around the countryside and it's the first time they've heard it since his accident and they had been assuming that he had lost his ability to make that sound and the dog barrels down the path and he tries to jump on the dad and it's it's one of the most like emotionally complete parts of the book for a book that tends to shy away from those sorts of moments yeah. but then it's it's kind of belittled by then the by, I, the boy or the mom or they have this response of just like oh wow he's back well that's cool and then <laughs> go about their lives you know uh yeah the Here the boy's go. reaction is just pause home he said and he grabbed his sister who started to run toward the cabin wait He's mighty crippled up, so behave like nothing has happened. Can he walk? The youngest child asked. Yes. And don't you ask no questions. And that's like it. <laughs> don't, don't ask him how he is. <laughs> and then later, I guess they did a good job because the mother says, you've been mightily natural and considerate. 
to the kids. So I guess they did a good job not asking questions. Like that mm-hmm. was, even though the mother didn't tell him to do it, the boy did. That's like what everybody wanted. It's so strange. The author yeah. really never gives us the opportunity to have a genuine emotional moment in this book. I mean, you can infer them from the things that happen, but we never really delve into it. Yeah, I wonder if that's where it is the most successful, actually, because loneliness is a huge, like, hit you over the head hammer, huge theme of this book. The mother has several songs in her Rolodex about loneliness. (laughs) Um, She's got that down that lonesome road. You got to walk that lonesome valley. She's got like all the hits, all the lonesome hits. And he has this, um, the boy talks about being lonely in very different places. Like, it's more lonely in bed than it is sitting up with just his mother. It's less lonely when his father's around. So I did feel, like, kind of lonely (laughs) reading the book. Like, I didn't feel like I was with these characters. So I I sort of took the the no-name business to sort of be to intentionally alienate me which I don't like I don't want to be alienated (laughs) I want to be in on it you know you know he keeps talking in this positive light about wanting to be close to other people but like every interaction he has with anyone outside of his own family or even within his own family is very uh like either negative or very like proper like it doesn't even seem like the family has this sort of familial love and bond they speak with each other very proper and and very you know short and to the point uh at at least that's the way that the dialogue is written in in the in the novel um and i i kept thinking that maybe he's he because he because he repeats multiple times that he is lonely and he just wants this loneliness to end. And I'm wondering if that's sort of like that oh shucks like thing that we all dream about. You know that it it almost is better off being a dream. It's like changing careers or leaving your spouse or you know these things that were like oh I should do that I should do that I would be so happy if I did that. But you know like deep down in your soul that you would not necessarily that things might not work out or that they might not make you as happy as you want. So it's almost easier instead of trying and putting yourself out there and then having it fail it's easier just to sit back and be like gosh I wish I didn't have to be so lonely instead of actually doing something about it because then you would have to deal with the repercussions of going out there making these interactions and it not solving that sort of internal struggle that he has yeah and I think we need to be we need to point out I mean I'm complaining about things but I but obviously the point is that he's stuck in this world and he doesn't have an option of, he doesn't have other people to interact with, which is one of the reasons he wants to read. But when they, they don't have other people to reach out to, it takes a day to get to any of the houses that are nearby. Um, the town is populated by presumably only white people because the black people live in these sharecropping communities. So there's nothing to be found in town. So it's a problem with no solution almost. We're going to pause here for just a second for some announcements. We'll be right back. Hello, listeners. Are you a business owner? Your next customer might be listening right now, just like you are. You can let them know who you are by sponsoring this show. Just email us at hello at citizenracecar.com. That's H-E-L-L-O at citizenracecar.com. Racecar Radio is proud to support the work of IO Worldwide, a tenacious and dedicated organization working to address the root causes of poverty in West Africa. 
because they believe that who a person is and where they come from should not solely determine what they are able to achieve. To learn about their work and how you can support it, please visit ayaworldwide.org. And now, back to our conversation about Sounder. We sort of have to talk about the fact that it's about a black family and it's written by a white man. Um, it's We're certainly not in the business of telling people what they can and can't write, but I think it's worth addressing, and um, and I wonder actually if that distance, if that um, sort of inherent alienation in the, that's present, or that at least I felt as I was reading it, stems from the fact that that Armstrong didn't want to assume too much about the experience that this family would have been having. Oddly enough, it didn't bother me that much, and I'm someone who's really particular when it comes to certain stories being told and who is actually delivering those stories, and I think. The way this book at least was approached, he touched on what the experience was like for this family, but did it in a way without trying to fully embody what that experience was. It wasn't overly descriptive in the sense of like, you know, um, going into the mother's mindset and going into the mindset of the father and things like that. It didn't in a way in which we could still get the sense of what was going on around them living in this time period and come to our own conclusions in some way um, without really trying to recreate that experience through the book. So in that way, I think it's like, I guess he kind of gets a pass from me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, in some way because, yeah, that's where I guess I would draw the line because when you aren't someone who's who has gone through that experience, it's really hard to try to write to that voice. Um, yeah. Well, it's like you said, Carrie, you know, anyone can write a book about anything. Uh, and, it's America. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's it's more about how we as the audience interpret it. And I think that having it be a story that's told from the point of view of a black child and his family that we as the audience know, I, it's not it's not taking away from the story itself. It's taking away from like how we're sort of connecting to the characters and to the book and and the like quote black experience because there is sort of that undercurrent tone of like it's a book about the black experience but is it you know um but uh do you did you find any parallels between um the way that race is talked about in the media or in your own lives today and the way that it's discussed in this book i guess in some ways it kind of at least in the description of the white characters in the book, it did kind of flip the script a little bit. Usually when we see how the media depicts, you know, minorities, they'll always use some type of derogatory terminology or, you know, automatically this person has done something wrong without really thinking about it. Um, But in this sense, you know, a lot of the white characters, it's, yeah, it's like kind of a role reversal in a way. They're automatically depicted as, yes, they are terrible people. Like, let's not say they're a piece of cake. But um, yeah, the description of them, at least, is one that is the opposite of what we're generally used to seeing. Um, And I'm kind of intrigued or interested in the fact that they did that in a children's book. And that they're nasty people? What do you mean? Sorry? And that the police are depicted as nasty people? Just the way the boy talks about them, it's very strong language as well for a child to be using and the descriptions he gives in terms of what he would like to do to them um, or his... Right, the jailer in particular. He yeah. wants to kick him in the face or something. Yeah. Yeah. If I can... Yeah, um, take your time. Go ahead. Find it. 
I mean, he refers to the bullneck men. Actually, the dis- like describing someone as an animal, which is generally how African Americans are referred to as well. The fact that he calls this guy, you know, the bullneck man, um, reminded him of a bull um, that he had seen die in the cattle shoot at the big house where his father worked. The bullneck man would sag to his knees, the boy thought, and crumple into a heap on the floor, just the way the bull did. The boy thought, and blood would ooze out of his mouth and nose, which is kind of a graphic description. <laughs> For an authoritative figure. For also a man who, uh, whose really only crime to this boy was messing up the cake, the cake. <laughs> he brought for his father. Like, I think that that has to be mentioned, that that entire sort of diatribe about a severe aggression and physical harm is for a man that, yes, is jailing his father, and it is understandable, but he crumbles the cake that the boy brings as a present to his father, and that's the emotional response he has. It is very aggressive. It also makes you wonder, because we kind of touched on it before, but like how much interaction has he had with anybody? Yeah, anybody on top of like, yeah, other white people. And, you know, how did he come to this graphic conclusion? And I mean, I think it's also when you live a life in which you don't think there's anything else out there for you. You're going about your day to day, not really expecting much of the world, which is a really depressing thing to think about. Um, find out on page two, of all places, that um, the white man who owned the vast, endless field had scattered the cabins of his Negro sharecroppers far apart, like fly specks on a whitewashed ceiling. So not only are they geographically far away from anybody else, they've been forced into that place where they have to be far away from anyone else. So I guess they they don't really have the opportunity to go visit other people for every time he talks about interacting with people, like when he goes to school or um, when he speculates about his mother's trip into town when she goes to return the ham pig product thing, whatever it is, pork sausages. I, I, does ham turn into pork sausages if you cook it a certain way? Is that what happens? He stole a pig. I'm very meat illiterate. But <laughs> he... Every time he talks about other people that aren't his family, it's a negative interaction. The kids make fun of him for being late. The kids make fun of him for having patches. His, he speculates that his mother is going to run into like people being really nasty to her because of what his father did. When he goes to the jail, not unexpectedly, he has a terrible interaction. So it's... It's like a self-perpetuating loneliness. Like, it's so sad because it's like he wants to be part of this world that every time he goes out into is terrible. Um, so one thing, talking about how sort of didactic these books end up being, but in a really enjoyable way, I don't take that as a bad word, um, they often have a, a metaphor for life, what we're calling the illusion of life, Um And so for every um, book, we're going to find our illusion of life. Um, And uh, Steph, why don't you start us off with yours for Sounder? Sure. Um, So I actually chose one of the songs that the mother sings, um, which kind of encapsulates the idea of the journey and also in a way the boy kind of having to grow up or find his way on his own eventually. Um, So it was a song where she goes, you gotta walk that lonesome valley, you gotta walk it by yourself, ain't nobody else gonna walk it for you. Um, And I thought that kind of perfectly encapsulated that journey. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Listeners, no one's looking out for you but you. Just take that as a word of personal advice from myself and Steph and 
William H. Armstrong. Yes. <laughs> um, for me, it was this this quote at the end, and it's it's after the boy has met the white-haired teacher and learned to read and learned that the dog days of summer is a reference to the star that's visible at that time of year, and his father has returned, the dog has returned, the father has just returned, and the boy has this thought. Everything don't change much, the boy thought. There's eating and sleeping and talking and setting that goes on. One day might be different from another, but there ain't much difference when they're put together. Which is ultimately depressingly existential, <laughs> but true, <laughs> but right. And sort of the way that he's gotten through his life is putting one foot in front of the other and, and, and um, taking each day in stride and not questioning it. And... I sort of appreciate that because I think we often get caught up in the why am I here? Am I achieving my purpose? And, you know, um, Sounder doesn't worry about that. You know, bunnies don't worry about that. Like, what? why do we have to worry about it? And do we have to? I think what this book taught me is that all the days together, there's not much difference. (laughs) Now that we've had that moment, (laughs) uh, let's move on to our ratings of the book. What do we give it overall? Who wants to start? Steph? Carolyn? 3.5 stolen hams it's <laughs> good it's good uh I, I liked this book i think that it had its flaws but overall it was it was a joy to read and it it, it brought up some interesting questions so i give it four hearty sounder barks sad ear under a pillow. No! Thank you all. One's all you need. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, everybody, to our very first episode of the Newberry Report. We'll be coming at you again in two weeks uh, with the 1971 winner, The Summer of the Swans by Betsy Byers. So you have two weeks. Read it. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation and tell us what you thought about the book at facebook.com slash Newberry Report. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y Report. The Newberry Report is hosted and recorded by me, Carrie Caston, and my co-host is Carolyn Burns, with our special guest today, Steph Leakey. It was co-produced and edited by David Hoffman. It's a production of Race Car Radio. If you're not already subscribed to our show, you can do so on iTunes or Google Play or head to www.racecarradio.com. Race Car Radio is a division of Citizen Race Car. We tell stories.